Welcome to the Manifestation Bay podcast. My name is Katherine Zinkina, and I'm a manifestation expert, master mindset coach, and multiple seven-figure entrepreneur. I'm obsessed with helping you achieve everything that you once thought was impossible. If you're looking to massively up-level your life, your finances, your relationships, your productivity and success, then you have come to the right place. My goal in this podcast is to help you see the infinite potential within yourself to be, do, and have anything that your heart desires. Think of this podcast as your weekly dose of mindset development to help you maximize who you are and where you're going. Leave it to me to provide you with the tools, the resources, the strategies, and teachings that you need to manifest a reality wilder than your wildest dreams. I know we're about to have so much fun together, so thank you so much for pushing play today, and now let's begin. Before we dive into today's episode, I wanted to share with you that I have officially opened up the sign-up page for a free workshop that I am hosting on August 25th called Manifest Money for Good. It's a three-day live workshop designed for lightworkers like you who are ready to stop resisting the prosperity that they deserve so that you can attract more money and unapologetically change the world. I'm giving away some incredible prizes this time in true Manifestation Babe fashion, so you're definitely not going to want to miss this one. If manifesting more money for good is on your goals list for 2020, then guess what? The universe has officially answered your prayers. You can sign up right now at manifestationbabe.com slash money for good. Again, that's manifestationbabe.com slash money for good. I am so excited to see you in the workshop. Okay, let's dive into today's episode. Hello, gorgeous souls, and welcome back to the Manifestation Babe podcast. Oh my God, what just happened? I literally... I'm recording this intro as soon as I got off with my incredible interview with Dr. Nicola Perra, who is also known as the holistic psychologist. You guys are in for such a freaking treat. I'm pretty sure most of you already follow her, but if not, for the 0.0001% of you who are not, the holistic psychologist is someone who I somehow found on Instagram uh, back in 2018. And she is someone who created such incredible content that just went so beyond the traditional scope of psychology that every time I would read any of her posts, it would just hit my soul. It would make so much sense. The way that she would simplify things, the way that she would share her own personal healing journey, the way that she would share how to implement what she was teaching, it just resonated so much with me. And I was like, wow, this girl's awesome. And so I remember following her when she just had a thousand followers. And then now today at the dot holistic dot psychologist has over 2 million followers, 2.3 million to be exact. And I am so honored and feel so blessed and so privileged to have her today on the podcast because we are diving deep into healing, you guys. This is such an incredible interview that I cannot wait to share with you. 
talking all about her journey, what it was like to start her Instagram account as a clinical psychologist, um, what her journey was like taking the more holistic approach away from the more traditional psychology approach, how, what it was like to start Um, what it was like to explode her business, her Instagram following, what it was like to grow and all of the struggles and all the stuff that we talk about in between. We bring up the best topics that I think that she speaks on, things like triggers, boundaries, um, the ego, trauma and how we heal it and conscious parenting and just so much good stuff. Like I don't even want to make this intro very long because I really want you to dive into it. And especially after, as you're listening to this, you guys, if you can take a screenshot of this episode and tag both at the dot holistic dot psychologist, Dr. Nicola Para and I at Manifestation Babe, and just let me know what your breakthroughs are because I know that there are so many. I personally learned so much um, from this episode, and there was so much within Nicole's story that I resonated with, and it's so incredible what this woman has accomplished, and it's absolutely no secret why she has blown up so much in her success with her social media following. And what I appreciate most about her is how um, humble she is and just how generous she is and how genuine she is and how authentic she is. And I just can't get enough. And I, you know, in the middle of this podcast, I was like, oh my God, I have so many questions. We're going over an hour now. Oh my God, do I keep talking? And I just like, I felt my ego kind of like kick in and just the energy that this woman exudes. It's like this conversation could have gone for seven hours easily. So I am so pleased to announce and so pleased to introduce this episode to you guys. Um, Please send Nicole all the love for this. Um, She's amazing. And with that being said, let's dive right into today's episode. Enjoy. Hello, gorgeous souls, and welcome back to the Manifestation Bay podcast. I am personally freaking out right now because guess who is in front of me? Dr. Nicole LaPera. Did I pronounce that correctly? You sure did. Yay. You guys may know her as the holistic psychologist. And I am proud to say that I totally manifested this interview. How the hell are you, Nicole? Me too, Winky. So (laughs) I totally hear you. Um, I am great. In all seriousness, Catherine, we were joking earlier and I feel like you've been a soul that has crossed my path many times. And when we actually connected on Instagram, I don't even remember pretty early on. It was so early on. I am very proud to say, I was actually talking to another one of your followers who is one of my students. And she was like, you know, I've actually been following her since she had like a thousand followers. And I'm like, girl, me too. Nobody believes that. But I literally remember, I have no idea how our paths crossed, but I remember like sharing some of your stuff. You only had like a thousand followers, maybe even less, or maybe like a tiny bit more somewhere around there. And then every time I would go back to your profile, you would gain like 10,000, 20,000, a hundred thousand. It's like every week you're gaining a hundred thousand followers. And I'm like, this girl, first of all, deserves it. Her content is freaking amazing. And this is so freaking cool. And we, yes, like, I think we, I think we officially met on Instagram, like I would say end of 2018, if I jog my memory correctly, but, um, for the point 
0.00001% of people who don't know who you are. Can you just, without diving too deep into like the beginning and your story, because we're definitely going to go in there because I'm genuinely curious about that. Just give like a little blurb about like who you are, what you do, what you're passionate about, how you change people's lives. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So um, who I am on a personal note, Catherine, is I'm a human who, like many of us, has known a lifetime of anxiety. Um, as long as I can remember being a very little girl, nervous, fearful of the world. So that was just a backdrop of kind of who I was. I'm also someone who was very interested in the mind and what makes people do what they do. So fast forward many years of schooling and education, uh, I became a clinical psychologist to what I thought was to help people understand themselves and you know, create healing in their lives. And after struggling personally, you know, feeling really stuck with my own anxiety after uh, trying all the avenues of traditional therapy, you know, laying on the couch, being in my own therapy sessions, being medicated, and then watching all of my clients struggling in very similar ways. I mean, stuck, Catherine, is the number one word that I think directly and indirectly was coloring my whole life. And then the beginning of this practice that I wanted so badly to have, I didn't feel like I was capable of helping these humans that were paying me to help them. So long story short, after what many of us, I think now lovingly refer to as our dark night of the soul, my life came crashing down. So physical symptoms, my anxiety got to a place of completely out of control. Spiritually, I just felt lost in so many ways. Um, I entertained many fantasies of running far, far away to foreign countries, never to be seen or heard from again. So I was going through it. And as a result of going through that and gathering some information that was largely left out of my schooling and some new tools, incorporating this body that we are gifted with as a human being, learning really about emotions, really learning about our nervous system, I came to the conclusion of, okay, this is why we're stuck. We're stuck because historically, we've been treating humans as separate, as a body that's cared for, you know, with all of the medical type interventions, as, you know, our feelings, if we even are allowed to express them, they're taken care of in a different way. So mm-hmm. the short of it is I healed myself through holistic means, through really integrating the mind, the body, the spirit. And in doing so, I I saw the light, if you will. And as part of my journey, I came online, I started to share my story. And here I am a year and a half, almost two years later, (laughs) still shouting this truth from the rooftops. Uh, Yeah. And it's working and people are flocking and people need this kind of stuff. Like, can we just dive a little bit deeper into that dark night of the soul and like, kind of like share your journey? Cause I'm just super curious, like what, when did you when exactly did this shift start to happen in your life? Like, was it like shortly after school? Was it in your schooling? Was it after having clients? Is it after having a practice? And then when did you start shifting in like sharing this information with your clients? And what did you witness seeing within your clients from this kind of information, this new, more holistic approach? Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, for me, like I said, the anxiety, you know, was a backdrop for the entirety of my life. And I, I highlight two main periods of time. So my 20s was when I met panic. Um, I started to have panic attacks. I was living in New York City. Um, so was very, very uncomfortable, those of us that understand the panic. And then I, I guess I could say I was in school at the time. So I was understanding, you know, this is why I'm stressed. I have things to be stressed about. I'm living in a stressful city. I'm in graduate school. At the same time, my mom was starting to have some actual health problems. So I share that because 
I was making sense of my symptoms through what I thought were very realistic, understandable outside factors. Using logic. Using logic, right? And seriously, and this was part of my story too, everyone I talked to around me was feeling similar. We all had, no one had any energy. We're living on coffee. We're living for the weekend. We all kind of hate life as we know it on the day-to-day on some level. So nothing was really suspect for me in my 20s. I just thought I was saddling up for life as we aged, adulting, if you will. Uh, And then when in my 30s, in my mid-30s, my dark night really started to amplify. Um, Physical symptoms started to come up. I started to faint. Um, I started to forget my words mid-sentence. At this point, I thought something was physically wrong with me. I wasn't necessarily calling it a dark night at this point. I was making sense of it. Oh, here's that big, bad physical calamity that's finally descending on me. I personally, I was waiting for this my whole life. I have a lot of health anxiety. So here we are, you know, unveiling it in my thirties. So I share this because I think a lot of us go through these rationalizations along the way. And if we are seeing those around us struggling in the same ways as many of us are these days, we don't think anything's wrong. We, or we just assume this is what life is. So my awakening didn't really come until I got scared enough to do as a lot of us do, I consulted the big world of the internet. And when I was looking for the diagnosis that I was going to, I assume, get medical treatment for, I met a whole vast world of research that I wasn't yet familiar with, which is what started my own healing journey. At that time, I still had my practice. Yeah. And I was still seeing my clients week in, week out, you know, doing that more supportive based therapy. So what I would do with them is I really took it on a case by case basis. At this point, I'd clock years with some, some of my clients. So I knew the clients that I could start to introduce, you know, these more holistic methods or even just this information that it was present in the world to them. And then some of them, you know, I knew that they were coming in for the supportive talk-based therapy and I honored that, you know, I knew that that was our arrangement when we began. But in the back of my mind, I was already starting to come to terms with what my reality was becoming that I needed to evolve my practice and start working solely holistically. So then over probably a year or so, you know, I ended treatment with pretty much anyone that I was seeing in that old, more supportive. Um, Some I ended up seeing in a more coaching base. So it was an interesting evolution where some people were evolving along with the practice um, and some weren't. And then they obviously went and found supportive therapists and continued to do the work. So it was interesting. It was very much on a case-by-case basis. Yeah. What, I'm curious, like what were the, some of the things that you were discovering for the first time that were really able to help you? I'm just yeah, like, so curious about I was that. discovering that we have a body and <laughs> that the lifestyle choices that we make around this body, such as what are we feeding it? When are we feeding it? Mm-hmm. How much rest are we giving it? Uh, you know, I'm someone who's, I've been athletic my whole life. So somewhat aware of health and my body, but not to this extent. Um, one of the big pieces of information was our, our gut, our stomach, right? Is where we eat our food is actually connected to our, our brain or our mind. And the two of them are in communication back and forth, right? Our brain, I'm really simplifying it. Our brain is talking to our, you know, our gut and our gut is talking to our brain, right? Yeah. This is new information. When I was in school, all we really talked about was the brain. That's where these neurotransmitters, words that we might have heard of, if we serotonin, dopamine, you know, when you have diagnoses, usually we're told one of those is off. I have too much or too little. Mm, So again, I'm really simplifying it. But what I came to learn is that we need to pay attention to our gut and the food we're eating because that is actually the house of some of these 
neurotransmitters. Um, the biggest, I think, piece of learning was the whole science of epigenetics. Mm. The, the fact that, you know, we have these genetics, they, they exist, right? We are coded, we have genes, if you will. We now know that our environment, those lifestyle choices that I'm going on and on about are actually what's going to affect whether or not we get that thing or we don't get that thing, whether or not that gene turns on or turns off. That I think was the biggest aha for me because that gave me, gave us all, gives us all the possibility to change. Um, Because for historically, I, I thought I was stuck with anxiety And my conversation would only be one of how do I manage my anxiety? I never thought that we could engage a conversation about healing said anxiety because that wasn't written into that old model. Now with this new science, it's actually written in. There can become a pathway to healing because we're not uh, destined as we once thought we were genetically. You know, as you're talking, I just had a flashback to my own because um, I have a degree in biology and science, and the only you know thing class, too. <laughs> the only class I liked, to be honest, like I remember just like pulling my hair out and being like, okay, can I go home and read my self-help books? Because they are way more helpful to me. They're way more interesting to me right now than all of this. But one class that stood out to me, I will never forget. And as you're talking about this, I'm like, holy shit, that was the only class I ever was engaged with, which makes sense now. It's like, I tell people that how I got here and how I started manifestation coaching was that life prepared me. It literally... There were things along the way that sparked my curiosity. And though I had no explanation from them at that point, now it's like, right, hindsight's twenty twenty. Yeah. I look back and I'm like, oh, that's why epigenetics was one of my favorite classes. And I remember a lot of the students in the class were so mind blown and they were like, what? lifestyle and environment, you know, can trigger gene expression on or off. And for me, it felt like I was remembering something from a past life. Similarly to the first time I learned about the law of attraction, it was never really something that blew my mind. It was something where when I found it, I was like, this is what I forgot. It's like, this is the thing that I forgot. And this makes sense. And I remember this. I don't know how, but I'm going to apply it because it just makes so much sense. And for me, it was like epigenetics. And I was like, whoa. And so, you know, like how I do my work now is really using the thoughts and the mindset and the beliefs and the feelings to trigger gene expression on and off. And a lot of the work that I've done with like inner work and and, um, personal development has really helped me um, l- l- decrease my anxiety levels because I can totally relate with the anxiety. Like since I don't remember a single memory in childhood without anxiety, I was always anxious. I was always in panic. And so um, when I learned that, I was able to decrease it so much. And it wasn't until I learned about the brain gut connection as you're sharing. And I drastically, especially with my explant that I had last year, I drastically decreased and um, a lot of the, the crappy foods that I was eating, a lot of the artificial foods and artificial mm-hmm. flavors and sweeteners and all this stuff. And I like really just became super conscious of what I was eating and taking the right probiotic and doing parasite cleanses. And my God, I feel so much clearer. And it's like, why is this not being taught? And so my gratitude for you is the fact that you are talking about these things. And there is no question why you grew so fast. There's no question why people, so many people resonate with you. I'm curious, like what inspired you to come online into the beautiful world of the internet and start sharing your content with people? Like, can you just share with me like where that inspiration come from, came from? Like, take me back to like the very first time you created your Instagram account and like what your thinking was behind that. 
Yeah, absolutely. So as I'm starting to make sense and come, you know, piece all, all of these new models together, um, obviously I was getting a lot of success in my own healing and I was really feeling compelled to begin to speak about this, knowing that again, at least coming through my program, I had somewhat awarenesses of other programs, knowing that this might not be information that was widely out there. At the time, you know, I'm watching the social media world begin to pick up steam and everyone's kind of going virtually. And historically in my field, you know, we are actually given directives against in opposition to anything, you know, social media and virtual. I had begun though, to see other clinicians, you know, beginning to use social media for a more professional presence, as opposed to just us hiding our handles and hoping no one finds us online, you know, personally. So I was starting to watch other people evolve into that space. And my motivation was really twofold. The first motivation was I wanted just a space, a platform. I had no idea or any expectation about how big the platform were to be. But I just wanted a little nook to begin to speak this truth to others. Because Mm -hmm. again, like I said, I had the suspicion that whether or not you're just, you know, you're a human or you're in the clinical field, you probably weren't hearing this truth. And I was getting so much success my partner was getting so much success. She had began healing her own past traumas. Um, I wanted to expand, you know, beyond two people getting success. Right. So I wanted to see. It was a little bit of a litmus test. A second really big motivator was I was feel I was at the stage of healing, which I think a lot of us go through when we're in our dark night and when we're healing from all of our past of loneliness. I was starting to see a lot of my relationships around me shifting and changing. And I wasn't outside of my partner who I'm forever grateful that I had her, you know, kind of alongside of me on this journey. I didn't really have many other people that understood or that were speaking the same language. So from a personal perspective, another motivator was let me, let me see if I can create a community, you know, again, no expectation of how big where we were all speaking the same language. Yeah. So those are my motivations. They were backed one big fear that I had when I was, okay, so now I'm, okay, these two things in favor of going online. The one backdrop of concern I, I had always had before I went on was what are my peers going to think? Mm-hmm. Knowing that they hadn't heard this stuff, Catherine, there was a part of me that was like, am I going to be you know, some crazy person in the field? I mean, here I am talking about the practice of self-healing, not insinuating that the field is unnecessary. I do not believe that. I think the field is very necessary. I just know that we need some more consistently used tools outside of maybe our therapy session. But I also was you know, kind of reframing this and how are my peers going to think? So I was nervous going on. Um, I studied a lot of how to use it and like kind of conceptualize what do I want to bring to this space? So I did all of my homework. And then I went on with no expectation um, because one of my motivations was connecting. I spent a lot of time in the community, engaging with community members because that was one of my major pulls to go on. Yeah. I would say like very similar for me, no expectation whatsoever. It's like, it comes from this genuine connect, genuine um, desire for connection and just like finding your people. And I just want to commend you for your bravery of like, going for it anyway, even if you were afraid. And and I know that like, and I want to talk a bit about this as well. Like, I know it wasn't easy and I know they've expressed some things, you know, through, throughout your journey. I've been following you very closely, like where you have had things come up from people in your field that were really, really tough for you. You know, like what, 
have been some of the struggles? First of all, what is it like to explode that fast? I know that a lot of people have a similar question with me with like my business, like financially, it really exploded within like a year, um, you know, relatively going from $9,000 in a year to like 600K the next year for so many people. They're like, what did that feel like? And so I'm curious with you, like in terms of your following going from when I remember a thousand to like literally your first million was like, what, just a year? Was it just a year? Like what? Within a year. Mm -hmm. So fast. Like what was that like? And then what are some of your struggles? Like the good stuff and the the tough stuff? Like, can you just spill the beans? Absolutely. Absolutely. It was, it was completely unexpected. It's the first thing. When I say I was, was not expecting it. What I came to realize though very soon early on is yes, I, I, I do. I am the one that creates the content. I show up each and every day. However, I don't take full, you know, kind of onus on, I did this, I built this. I think yeah. I'm just putting out there a very universally needed language right now. Speaking to people who are very much feeling lonely and disconnected and stuck and frustrated and all of the things that are needing and wanting this. So that's how I really attribute, you know, I, I take ownership to the extent that I am the one putting the work out there, but I just see, I see this, yes, as being reflective of, you know, the, the readiness of the collective. So when I was able to step back and see that readiness, you know, then I was able to understand why that growth was happening so quickly and also anticipate that it might continue. Um, doesn't mean that it hasn't been anything less than a whirlwind. I mean, I sit here and speak to you now from the other side of the country than I was this time last year. Um, I'm trying to think, was it this time? Like, I can't even, so many things happened that first year, Catherine, from me shutting down that old practice to going virtually in a new practice that, of one-on-one work, was that, then evolving out of one-on-one work to membership work all, I think within a year. That's insane. Um, so whirlwind, my, my professional world was restructuring and changing emotionally. It was a lot for me. I talk a lot about, uh, if you follow my work, one of my inner child wounds is, you know, not really feeling seen, uh-huh. you know, and considered in childhood coming from really un- emotionally unavailable, overwhelmed family, really. The entirety of the family was, was in that state. Um, so on the one hand, that which I desperately want, see me, hear me, is also that which is the most uncomfortable place. So as those numbers grow, there's a very real part of my inner child that does want to run away, that does want to you know, hold up something in front of her face and say, oh, I, I'm not that important. Stop listening to me. So it's been really a challenge. I share that because it's been a challenge in my own healing, coming okay. to a platform of this size and seeing the size of it and hearing then the good, the bad, and the ugly in terms of the feedback. Because as the numbers increase, so do all of the opinions um, yeah. about the work. Yes. And how, what would you say were, have been like your best tools for handling that, like handling the growth, handling any criticism that you have. And of course, like you have so much love, like just so much great feedback. Um, but I'm just curious because this is a question I get so often. I wanted to ask you as someone with such a large following, like what are your favorite tools when triggers come up? Like, let's talk a little bit about triggers. Like yeah. what are triggers? Yeah. Where do they come from? Um, how do they come up and how can we handle them? How can we deal with them? How can we heal them? Yeah, absolutely. So what, what I'm going to start at the, the first question and then wrap back around. So I love it. I got it. I, I'm, I'm keeping track. The, the tool, and I'm going to explain how this uh, connects to triggers and, and emotional activation. Yeah. So the tool that I'm always talking about, and this is on both ends with the positive feedback and with the negative feedback. 
Mm. What I call it is depersonalization. So I went on that whole spiel about how it's not just me that everyone's celebrating this 2.5 million. I mean that. So yeah. what I, when I say when something positive comes in, I try to create a space where I don't wear it as like my badge of honor that I've done this. So I don't take it as personally. A lot of people do very personally say I've changed their life. I always make it a point to reframe that and say, you've changed your life, right? So I mean that when I say that I depersonalize the positive, I don't take it all as what I've done. I know it's not actually all about me. Same thing with the negative. When I hear totally. negative feedback, I work very hard to separate myself from that and understand in the context where it is not about me, that it is not about me. So what is a trigger? We all carry you know, the remnants of really painful past experiences, you know, whether or not that's the big T trauma, like a lot of us universally have been known, you know, have known trauma to be the abuse, the sexual, physical abuse, the egregious neglect. You'll hear me also talking about little T trauma, a more expanded definition. I believe we're all carrying some wounding from our very early experiences. So what happens is we're living our life day to day and things are happening in our current environment that are so similar to things or the way we feel about something happening in our current environment is very similar to how we felt in the past. And that's what a trigger is. So what's happening in our now for many of us is we're having a really big feeling about something present in our environment. The question though becomes is, am I reacting to what's actually happening in this moment or is this a remnant of some past experience? And for most of us, it's the latter. So what I'm able to do when the negative commentary comes, when I feel myself being triggered, creating that space, which sometimes means stepping away from the comment or the conversation so that I can regulate myself. Because once I'm having an emotional experience, I'm human. You know, I don't love some of the things that get said to me. My emotions start to get activated. Sometimes time, you know, I'll go and do some deep belly breathing. I'll try to regulate myself before I re-engage that conversation. Because if I'm triggered, it's going to come across in my language. Same thing on the other end. When I see someone else reacting emotionally to something I've said or what they believe I've said, I try to hold that space for them as well, right? Understanding that they might be reacting to something in this moment now that maybe I precipitated the thing I said, but that it might not actually be about me at all. So I don't have to own, you know, take ownership of it. This doesn't apply, of course, Catherine, to all situations. I do think it's important to take feedback and to try it on for size, like I say. Yeah, um, but we don't have to let all of the feedback in because sometimes it's not about us and it's not about what's happening now. What does it look like to hold space? Like in the context of like an online world, you can take you can take some time away, you can decompress, right? Like you have the the choice and the free will to mm-hmm. put your phone mm-hmm. down and kind of separate yourself from it. But what about like situations that arise like right in front of your face? Like having a conversation with a loved one or a stranger or whoever it is where it's like you can't necessarily just like put your phone down. You're like, hold on, pause, right? You're, in, you're so in the moment. Is there a way that we can con- be more conscious and hold space for other people as we're interacting with them within the moment? Absolutely. So consciousness, you said one of the biggest things I'm always talking about. We have to cultivate consciousness. So many of us are living in that autopilot where we tune in quite literally after the fact. I know I've lived many moments where I'm shameful after I just did some screaming and yelling and I'm not even, I wasn't even really tuned in into that moment. So 
I say that because Catherine, consciousness is something we have to practice consistently. We can't just wait for those moments where I'm having that hard conversation and expect me to use a new tool. Uh, And I I talk about this often because I'm human too. I wish that to be the case, if I'm honest. I wish to only use things as needed. And I've come to learn the very hard way that that's not how this works, that we have to practice, whether it's consciousness consistently enough, that I can maintain consciousness in that moment. So even if I'm being triggered internally, right, I can choose a new response in that moment. Same thing with breath work. I talk a lot about regulating our nervous system Mm. and the importance of that. If you're going to wait for the argument to do some deep belly breathing, it's probably not going to be so successful because you probably won't remember and your body's not going to be regulated enough from doing it one moment in time. So again, we have to practice things consistently so that when we really need to, we can hold space in the moment. So that means daily practice of navigating your own triggers, right? When you're not in the context of me with another human, we are still being triggered all day long, right? Right. So this is the time to practice allowing that internal world to be activated. You know, you're still going to hear all the things and feel all the things, you know, in terms of the trigger that's going to be there. But as you create more and more space so that when I am in front of you, Catherine, and you're saying something to me that I'm not pleased with, internally, I might be rolling my eyes. I might be retorting that thing I want to say back to you, but I can still maintain my consciousness enough to possibly elicit a new response, which sometimes might mean if I'm really feeling overactivated, ending the conversation before it gets to a point of no return. So it might mean putting a pin on it. Hey, I'm really sorry. I can see this conversation is very important and very necessary. I also know that having a conversation when we're both emotionally upset is probably not going to be helpful to either of us. Any chance we can circle back to this at a time when we're both in a clear space. So sometimes putting a pin in it is our best chance at avoiding the old reactions. Yeah. It's like forming a habit. Within a daily practice, you are just, you're making it an unconscious practice where even though you're a human being, challenges will come up, obstacles will come up. There will be times where you still act out of fear and out of scarcity and out of some sort of past experience, it's like even the most woke people still do it. But it's like within your daily practice, you are practicing to where when that situation arises, you your nervous system automatically goes to where you to however you trained it to be. Um, I love that you mentioned breathwork. I'm like the biggest fan of breathwork right now. It's like a newfound discovery for me. It's ridiculously powerful. And you talked about nervous system regulation besides you know, deep belly breaths and breath work. What are, I saw you made a post the other day with like a nice list of things that you can do. What are, what, what are other things that we can do in our daily practice to kind of keep our nervous system calm so that we don't go into that anxiety or panic or fear and just stay there? Not that it's not okay to go there sometimes because we're human beings, but like, I feel like staying there is what creates chaos in our life. 100%. I lived there. And I think a lot of us do. I lived in that. So that anxiety that you you and I both attested to having from childhood, you know, what I've come to understand is my whole family was living in fight or flight their whole lives. Meaning my nervous system was activated as if there was a threat around every corner, because that's what it truly felt like, which just continues to exacerbate the perception of threats around every corner. Right. And then we are hypervigilant and we are on edge. And the little things are the straws that break the camel's back because mm-hmm. we just don't have any bandwidth. We don't shut off 
from that activation state. So, so many of us, again, I don't, I can't remember one class where even though I went to a program that was trauma informed and we did work on trauma, you know, again, this was, I was in my, this was a, you know, over a decade ago plus that I was in school, you know, maybe it's changed, but never once was the nervous system and nervous system regulatory tools really talked about. So you'll hear me talk about a particular nerve. And I think this is probably the post you're referring to. Mm -hmm. It's called our vagus nerve. Um, so to keep it simple, our vagus nerve is really the the switch, you know, that kind of helps us regain that flexibility in our nervous system. So essentially to turn it off when, if you're like me, it's always turned on. So just to think about it like this, our vagus nerve connects our brain to all of our internal organs. So the tip of it is up here at our throat, which is why I bring this up, mm-hmm. singing, yes. gargling, chanting, anything where we're manually stimulating the tip of that nerve can go a long way. I actually have an incredible, um, I'm always talking about Allie, uh, an incredible community member whose journey started with, like you're saying, creating a habit. Her habit started with one glass of water. That has evolved into pretty much a a top to bottom life change, including she's returned to singing, in particular, to stimulate her vagus nerve so that she can get regain that flexibility. So if we have singers out there, singing in the shower, people who chant, you know, gargling. If you don't like any of those things and you brush your teeth, gargling, right? Anything where we're stimulating can build that tone back into that vagus nerve. Breath work, I always shout out because we're breathing all day. Um, It doesn't even have to look like a sitting practice where I carve out my time and, oh, I'm going to go do my breath work practice. Honestly, Catherine, the way I practiced was I just taught myself how to breathe from my belly all day long. Yeah. No one saw me doing it. I would be sitting in there with clients, just practicing that deep belly breath. Again, belly in particular, because now you're going to stimulate the bottom of the nerve, mm. the vagus nerve. So we don't want to be, it's not just a shallow chest-based breath, but I share this because some of us feel really overwhelmed by a practice where we have to carve time away and sit in a quiet room and do yeah. the thing. Oh my God. So yes. practically approaching some of these tools, I think is, is more successful for some of us. That is such an important point because I um, recently got a question. I invited my audience to send submit like a video Q and A's, and a question that I got was like uh, one of my past students. She's like, when I was doing your course, you know, I carved out time every single day, an hour to like do the work, and then now that it's over, I as I started my business and my business started growing, I stopped carving out that time, and now I'm having trouble manifesting. And a lot of people think that manifesting is something that you do within a specific time frame, not realizing that it's like the law of attraction is like the law of gravity. It's like saying that this morning, the law of gravity was on and now it's turned <laughs> off and, oh wait, I forgot to use the law of gravity. So hold on. I need to focus on it again. Yeah. <laughs> it's, on. it's like, no, 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 no. Manifestation happens 24 seven, the same way that we as human beings are expressing ourselves in this human form 24 seven. And the work of manifesting lies in you incorporating it and integrating it into every freaking second, every waking conscious second. And so I love that you say like, do these practices. It doesn't have to be like a seated thing, like meditation. You know, a lot of people think that meditation is this like long drawn out thing where you have to sit there and chant and breathe. And like for me in the beginning, when I started meditating, it was me lying in bed 
and just like half like napping and half awake and just kind of being like, okay, let me just check this thing out. I hated the whole seated practice. It had to be lying down. And then as I got used to it and as it resonated with me and as I enjoyed it, I was able to actually sit and then do some um, mudras and like chant some things and do some affirmations, maybe some visualization, but it was like such an evolution. And then it's all about like just carving out two minutes, five minutes, mm-hmm. 10 minutes. It doesn't, if it, if you make it this thing, how are you ever going to make it a habit? The yeah. only way it's ever going to become a habit is if you simplify it. And I love that you just, you simplify everything. It's like one of your greatest gifts. And I think that that's why you resonate with so many people is that, you know, you, you attribute, you attribute your success to just being a channel to this like universal knowledge, this universal truth. I would say that the thing that is so incredible about you is just that you are such a clear channel that you're able to take these like complex, just things that, you know, would take someone with a PhD to have to understand sometimes with all the scientific language behind it. And you're just like, yo, listen, like this is how you can apply it in like your every single day life. Um, which is, I think is so amazing. I really appreciate that you define, um, trauma with a big T and a little T, um, because typically in the traditional sense of psychology, we think of trauma as being like just the, 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 the violence, right? The sexual trauma, like the really big stuff. And then what I've been seeing lately is some like other awesome psychologists that I follow, they start saying like trauma is anything that felt traumatic to you. And I really appreciate that because I, I, you know, I've always questioned where my, where this anxiety comes from. And the first time I ever discovered that I do have some big T trauma that I was very unconscious of, I only thought I had little T trauma and, you know, we all have trauma, whether it's big T or little T. But I remember asking my mom, coming up to my mom one day because I just couldn't take it anymore. I remember, um, going through an uncomfortable process in my business. And it just felt like, it felt like someone was about to like rip the rug out from underneath me. It felt like my entire foundation is about to like crack. And I was sick of feeling that way. And I felt like I was living in that place of constantly expecting something to just fall through and the other shoe, quote unquote, the other shoe Mm -hmm. to drop. So I approached my mom one day and I'm like, mom, listen, why am I so anxious. And why do I always feel like my foundation is about to crack and fall? And like, I'm about to lose everything. Like what happened in my childhood? Right. And so she just like opened up the floodgates that I didn't even know. Like, I didn't even think I was ready for. I was like, okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. That's why I don't have any conscious memories before the age mm-hmm. of nine. Oh my God, that's what that was. I thought that was a dream. That was an actual thing. And then of course, doing regression therapy, like mm-hmm. hypnotic regression. And then of course, ayahuasca. Ayahuasca does not hold back when she shows you things. So I've seen some stuff and it makes sense. And it's been such an amazing part of my healing journey to get some understanding. But like for, and I want to like take this into two directions. For people who just intuitively know that there it has been some trauma because they're obviously experiencing these triggers today, like what can people do to heal that so that they can live their adult lives in more of that like relaxed, peaceful place, um, you know, a more conscious place, I guess. And then for people who have gone through something enormous, like what are some um, what are some recommendations you have for them? What are some things that they can do? Like how can they create a life where their trauma no longer holds them back. Yeah, absolutely. I know I just um, dumped like a whole No, <laughs> no, no. I, I love it. And I, I want to thank you for sharing because, you know, and I want to illustrate just personally, 
and why I'm so impassioned about continuing to include little T and trauma. And I will always talk about it because I, I lived a very confusing, and I think a lot of us do experience looking back, you know, I learned just like a lot of us that these are the big, bad things to look for. Um, you know, and I, when I looked back, I didn't really see, and I didn't have an intuition that those big, bad things happened to me. Yet I continued to see myself struggle, you know, in many ways with many symptoms in my relationships generally overall. So I didn't know I was confused for a very long time. And that's why I I will always kind of maintain that as part of my definition, because I think a lot of us are confused and we assign labels of effectiveness or brokenness or something's wrong with me when we can't make sense of why we're struggling as we are. And yeah. the reason why we're struggling as we are is because like I said, a lot of, there's a lot of pathways to wounding that can continue to color our experiences of life. Um, so what do we do? I also have people that ask me a lot because I have very, like you, very few memories. Um, my, my memories are very absent for the large majority of my life. So a lot of times I will get people who I thought, again, this was something obviously wrong with my brain that caused me to not have memories. I now understand what causes a lot of us to have lacking memories. So when I talk about it, you know, points of relation spread in, it resonates. And then the most question I get, well, can we still heal? What do I do if I don't know what happened to me? Yeah. If I don't have, right? That I have that question. Back to, mm-hmm. you know, or if I don't, you know, go and take the ayahuasca or like, you know, have the regression, I can't have it revealed to me. Can I still heal? And my answer is always the same. Absolutely. Because we are still living. We are living the conditioning, the patterning, those wounds, and all the ways we had our best attempts at coping with those painful parts of our life day in and day out. So what do we do to heal? We start where we're at. We practice observation. We watch you know, our habits in our day-to-day life. We see, because we are very habitual, right? We see what we do with our physical bodies. We see what our emotional worlds look like. We see our go-to coping mechanisms. We all have them. Mm-hmm. We see for ourselves. And then once we kind of practice that self-observation, then we can begin to create change. We can begin to show up differently in our relationships. One of the things that we're probably going to want to do if we sit on any spectrum of the trauma, if we notice that nervous system activation, that always on edge, you know, we definitely want to incorporate some of those body regulation techniques to build safety, to send a signal that wasn't there probably in childhood when these painful things happened, sending a signal to our body that we're safe now. Mm. Because if we don't do that, and this is why I don't believe the traditional model of keeping the mind separate over here, we just talk about what's wrong. Right. That won't work because, and this is something I wanted to say earlier too, about, you know, doing something, you know, when we do something for one hour, the importance of habits a really impactful therapy session or practicing, say, even meditation for one 20-minute period of my day, my question always is the same. What does the rest of your day look like? What do you do 95% of the time outside of that one hour, that one practice? And if your answer is, I don't know, or I go back to my autopilot, right, then that's why these things aren't as effective. So we practice self-observation, And then some of us might need to engage in those body regulation tools, right? Changing our lifestyle, incorporating some of that polyvagal work, the breath work, the gargling to build that system of safety into our body. Because if we don't, no amount of logic or reasoning is going to shift and change our emotional reactions in those really pivotal moments. 
If you're someone who has, I just want to highlight this too, because there are some traumas, right. That live in our brain where we have flashbacks, you know, where we really, where nightmares occur. There are somatic therapies out there that are very, very helpful, right? You go in, you get a supportive therapist. You can do something like EMDR. There's a bunch of different modalities now that are, you know, aware of that component of the body, um, body work in and of itself. A lot of us house trauma in our physical bodies and our musculature and tightness in our nerves. So there's a whole world now of therapies that are beyond, oh, I just go and talk about it. That right. someone who experiences this trauma might want to incorporate because they can really go a long way as well. Can I just ask like tangibly, because my audience loves tangible examples. Yeah. So I try to brainstorm as much as possible, like questions that may come up. What does it actually look like to observe? I know I understand what you mean, but some people are be like, what do you mean observe? Like, what does that tangibly look like? Do, like yeah. do you have an example, like a scenario and then what you would do inside your own mind to be like, why, why the F did I just do that? Like, why am I thinking that way? Like, that's how I see it. So I'm just curious what you would say. Yeah, I love that. And I appreciate you, you asked that to clarify, Catherine. So what do we want to observe? And I've had clients and members, just observe your behavior. Spend a week, two weeks, right? Where the thing you're observing is what you do. What do you do first thing when you wake up, right? What does just your general day look like? What are those behavioral habits? We might be surprised by some of them because we might think we're doing things differently or living in a different way than we actually are. Yeah. Right? So some of it's just observing your daily habits. So what I've had people do is just you know dedicate two weeks to maybe keeping a little journal, maybe putting it in their phone. Just observe yourself. Note what your morning habits are. What are your habits around eating? We tend to take our meals in the same sort of habitual so way, right? Yes. And we're unconscious. I mean, this might sound so simple to listeners like, oh, okay, that's my step. Just go watch what I do. But for a lot of us, this is going to be very informing because what we think we're doing might look different than what we do, especially around time. You know, a lot of us think we have much more scarcity around time Mm -hmm. that if we were to observe ourselves for two weeks, you know, we might see a lot of time, you know, being spent in places that we weren't realizing how much time was spent in. So observe behavioral habits, something else that could be really helpful to observe your mental world, because a lot of us are completely consumed with what's going on in our mind. And for the most part, most of us are narrating our day from the time we wake up until the time we go to bed. So the other thing, and this is obviously a little, so maybe practice watching yourself externally first because this could be uncomfortable, then tune into your thoughts. Same thing. Spend a couple weeks observing your thoughts throughout the day. You're going to notice how repetitive they are, how you tell yourself the same stories, how all narratives somehow lead back to the same themes that color my day. And then what you'll come to realize is those narratives are very much mapping onto how you feel. Mm. When I made something stressful in my mind, I'm going to have that stress response in my body. Right. So we want to begin to observe our internal world as well. Yeah. My coach actually last year, he challenged me to a 10 day silent retreat, like a silent meditation of like, literally, I forgot what the (laughs) specific name, do you know what I'm talking about? This pinata, I'm not saying it, but yes, I'm I'm familiar with that one. So when I looked it up, I'm like, are you freaking kidding me, Jim? Like, my coach uh, last year was Jim Fort and I freaking love the guy. And um, I realized like, yeah, that is exactly what I need because he was like, Catherine, you're just so overthinking things. Sometimes you're so in your head and you just allow your ego to narrate these stories that aren't even real. Like your true identity is that you are a soul. 
Like that is it. You are a soul. You came here. You're a healer. You're helping the world. Like you're doing all these incredible things. Everything else is a story. I love that you speak about the ego. I want to talk a little bit about the ego. Like for you, what is the definition of the ego? Um, why is it important to know, you know, ego versus higher self? And is that narrator in our heads, the mental world coming typically from our ego? Yeah, absolutely. So love that. Um, I talk a lot about the ego because one myth that I want to dispel about the ego is it's not bad or any yeah. other thing negative. That Thank you. Thank you for sharing that truth. Uh, of course. Same thing. Of course. And furthermore, therefore, our goal is not necessarily, I've heard language like kill it, you know, eradicate it, remove it, stop it, you know, silence it. That's how it comes back with a vengeance, you guys, is when you try to kill it because nobody wants to die. (laughs) Yes, 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 absolutely. And it sets us, in my opinion, up for something unattainable, Mm -hmm. right? We, We, I mean, getting to the place where our ego isn't, you know, protecting us, that's what I believe it is. That's why I don't think it's about killing it. It has a protective function. Yeah. And again, it, it, be, it, it was formed kind of based on just accumulated past experiences. And the simplest definition I give, it's the story of us that we narrate to ourselves all day long about who we think we are, our place in the world, what it is, what it isn't, what we determine our quote unquote personality to be. I put those in quotes because I define personality as really just an accumulation of conditioned habits, mm-hmm. most of which, if not all of which can be changed, Right. But that's what our ego is. It's who we've come to believe ourselves to be that we feel on some level we do have to defend. That's why it has a protective function. That's why when someone expresses an alternate opinion than us, we do feel at, you know, like up in arms. And a lot of us feel like we have to defend our opinion because in that moment, what we feel we're defending is ourselves, not realizing that that's not who we are that we are, right, that expansive being, the observer of all of these stories, right, the soul behind it, the consciousness, whatever you want to call it, that is the beautifulness of a human. However, we're so distracted and we are giving our ego so much power. So what our real goal is, right, not to off it, but just how to integrate it, meaning knowing that there's going to be a large portion of time where it's still going to be there, attempting to what it thinks is keep us safe, but that we're the person and to empower ourselves as a person who gets ultimately to choose. Because something I hear a lot too, we learn about ego and we maybe identify it in our life. And now we want to turn that switch and shut it off. And the point you and I are both making too, they're going to come sometimes. I still know for me myself, I still react from ego. I still let my ego call the shots, right? So we don't just turn that switch off and the ego is very nicely integrated and we get to choose from our higher self. That's where all of this consistent practice comes into play. So we can cultivate enough repetitive responses and consistency in our higher self that that becomes our resting state. I always say like, I, I talk to my ego, like it's my BFF and like, I would just talk to it. I would just be like, yo, ego, like, listen, listen up. First of all, we are safe. Okay. Second of all, like things are so good. And you know what? I am so grateful for you. Thank you so much for protecting me. Thank you so much for keeping me alive. Thank you so much for bringing me to earth. Cause I know I wouldn't be anchored here in the 3d physical world without you. So thank you. And like the moment I have this conversation, my ego, whatever story, BS story it's trying to tell me, you know, BS according to my higher self, because according to the ego, it's just trying to do its job. It's just trying to protect me. And everything that it is seeing is like, this is the truth. You're in danger. You can't afford this. You can't do this. Like, oh my God, this is a repeating pattern from your childhood. We got to protect. We got to, 
And I just learned to like converse with it. Like it's my best friend. And sometimes in any relationship, people act out. So like sometimes your ego is going to act out, right? And you just have to forgive it and be like, you know what? Completely get it. I can see how you're threatened. And I just want to let you know, ego, that remember, I will lead us to our dream life together. And it's just such a like beautiful thing. It's like a beautiful partnership. Would you say that the observer is the higher self? Like yeah, how would you that's how. Okay, that's yeah. how. That's what I kind of conceptualize it. Yeah. I love. I love what you're offering there too. I just kind of want to emphasize because gratitude. You know, a lot of us, you know, really can be helped by that reframe by acknowledging it there, by working to befriend it, by appreciating. You know, that it believed for so long, and that we did need that for so long. We did need that story to keep us, you know, in a, the safest place as possible. And I love that kind of the, I, I offer a suggestion to name it for a similar reason, right? To name it as if it is a friend that is yeah. inside of you, you know, and right, right now you sometimes are at odds with what one should do in life. And ultimately we want to just practice making the decisions from that highest self. Yes. I want to talk about, there's a hot topic that I would say the majority of the questions that I got from my audience for you are around boundaries. And especially like things that have come up a lot, of course, in quarantine as people are stuck together in a house, like how the hell, first of all, what are boundaries? Why are they important? And how do we create them? And, and like, especially like for me personally, like, like, and I'm pretty sure it's for all of us, most of us, at least like my conditioning is that you know, this is not something that we learned in school. I didn't have like boundaries or the concept of boundaries until like a couple years ago when I realized that continuously I'm allowing people to take advantage of me. And that's coming from this little people pleaser, um, need to people please that's coming from childhood, right? Because I always had to please my parents and please my friends and all of these things and please my teachers. Um, like why are boundaries important? How do we develop boundaries? and yeah, just like just take the floor. Talk about boundaries. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you're not alone, Catherine. I had no idea what the hell a boundary was. Never heard of it. Never learned of it. Came from a family where they were non-existent. Yeah. So I know for a lot of us, this is new language. And we're and like conditioned. Is, we're like conditioned to think that boundaries are us being rude, which yeah, is selfish. That's another word. Yeah. We, we love to say they're selfish. Um, yeah. So what a boundary is really short and simple. It's a limit right? It's a limit that we place on ourselves around maybe our physical body and the comfort in terms of um, physical space, physical touch, you know, kind of what are the limits that I am most comfortable with existing to keep my body feeling safe? They differ for all people. Yeah. Emotional boundaries also exist, which is really quite simply, right? Creating a space where I can allow myself to have a feeling that's separate from another human being. Those of us that are people pleasers, Typically, this is what it looks like in adulthood. We don't have that because our feelings are really contingent, particularly for us people pleasers, on how someone else is responding to us. Yeah. So in those moments, it doesn't actually, it's not really about how we're feeling about what's happening. We're more attuned to how they're feeling. That's going to dictate how we're feeling. So in that really simple example, there is no space, right? We're all sharing a feeling in a sense. So creating a space where I can tolerate having a separate emotional experience from even the people that I love the most and spend the most time with. That's a boundary. So it's a limit and they're different. So as far as I see it, there's three really like simple steps, though very not simple if you're someone like myself <laughs> that has never had a boundary. Uh, first step is identify the need for boundaries in your life, right? So if you are a people pleaser, chances are we need some boundaries. 
So where are the areas that we need boundaries? That would be the first step. This is an individual process. This doesn't mean, you know, kind of powwowing with the person that, you know, you're struggling with, totally. right? And asking them what they think, because no. chances are you're going to be at odds with that recommendation. So internally, and of course this means probably what the urge is going to be when you're trying to decide, oh, you know, maybe I do need a little less time with this person, or maybe I need to be a little, little less available over here in this relationship because it drains me. Probably our tendency in this moment where I'm doing my self-exploration is going to play the tape out and wonder how that's going to affect that other person, right? So much more complicated, but the goal of this step is ideally, what do you need to change in your relationships or around the way you carry your person to make you feel most comfortable, most safe? And then once you've come with the areas that you need to shift or tighten, usually the things that come up for many of us is, you know, I need to, I want to be a little less available to this person. I have that friend who's all, for me, it was my sister who's always calling me, you know, for the latest stressful thing, you know, and that stresses me out. Right. A lot of times that's a boundary around time. A lot of us need time boundaries. I feel like I have to be on call for everyone in my life, you know? So when that friend texts, even if I don't really feel like seeing that friend today, oh, they're available. So I'm available. Those are two really common boundaries. So I've, right, I've done my internal work, I've explored, and I've identified these two areas that I want to switch. The next step is to enact the boundary. Important caveat here. This is not the place where we go, Catherine, I need you to stop calling me every time you're upset. No, no. We tell Catherine, Catherine, you know, I love you. I care about you. I have a lot going on in my world. I'm not going to be able to be available to your phone call if it happens, say, after 9 p.m. because I need to get some sleep. I will call you, you know, the next day if and when, you know, you need me, okay? So Catherine might still call at 9.05. That means that Nicole has to not pick up the phone, right? So when I enact the boundaries, you know, I emphasize this is about me doing something different to create the change in our relationship. Yeah. Not me looking and pointing the finger and wanting this other person to change as many of us do. Yes. Often that is the result, right? Because as we start to do differently, the person has a choice, honor the boundary or the relationship shifts. Third step. So, right, I've identified, now I've enacted. So when you do call, I don't respond. And then I have to maintain it. Meaning yeah. I have to be very consistent. That's this for good. someone like me and probably for a people pleaser like you is probably really hard. Because for me, this is when I'm plagued with what I call the feel bans. All of the panic and reasons why I should, you know, pick up that phone. And what is this person going to think? And oh my gosh, they're going to think I don't love them. This is where a lot of our work then is internal. So I've identified, I've put the boundary up, and then it is my job to maintain that boundary. Because when we, when we take it down or we say we're just kidding or we become available again, now we're sending a mixed message to that other person. I love that. So... Okay. So it's easy to have someone not call you or not pick up the phone, but what if you live with them, Nicole? That's the, yeah. that's the biggest question that I get is like, especially in my courses where, for instance, um, it's typically women who invest in my uh, academies and their husbands are not, are like, what the hell is this? What is man? Why would you do this? Like, is this a real MBA? Like, like you're getting a business degree or is it, or what, what the hell is MBA? And then they have to explain it. And then it's like this whole thing of just like, it's a, it's a whole stress point for them of how do we maintain those boundaries, especially 
around people that we love and that we live with. And that it's not like I can just shut the door on them and just say, Hey, you go to your place. I stay in my place. Like, what if it's your husband? What if it's your kid? You know, what if it's your uh, roommate or anything like that? Yeah. But obviously much, much more complicated, especially in terms of physical space. And I know with quarantine and COVID and a lot of us are living in that pressure cooker of not having the other room to go to or the office to be at, you know, 40 plus hours a week. Um, and I know we're also a bit restricted in terms of even going for the walk and things like that. Obviously outside of quarantine and COVID, you know, those things are important creating the space, whether it's in another side of your home, you know, you having your little area, it can even be a corner of the home where you go and do your thing. If you're someone who's interested in being out of the home, going on walks, so creating space, um, because it can become a pressure cooker. So it might, we might need to get a little creative, you know, but so for me, this was part of it. I had a family who didn't spend time. This might sound crazy in separate rooms. We mostly spend time in the same room together, not really interacting, just around each other. I'm out. I'm done out of here. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? So for me, as silly as it seems, I've had to get comfortable with being in a separate area of my home. That's not big. That's very small with my own partner because I would kind of buzz around her. And, you know, so now I, this, this is her work, you know, I can be outside reading and she can be in the bedroom, you know, and we're now separate and sharing yeah. space in a new way. So yeah. those of us that are enmeshed, you know, might understand this a bit more than someone else listening to this, but that's what it might mean actually just creating different, you know, flows in the home where we can feel like we're a bit more separate. Um, Obviously with quarantine, we have to get a little more creative during these times, but that's important. And that's difficult for so many of us, especially if you're like me, where you were seeing modeling or where you did participate in the same things with partners historically, it's okay to be on a different flow. There's many mornings where, you know, I wake up either having energy and wanting to have a bit more active of a day and you know, Lolly, my partner feels opposite and she's having a low energy day. So right. in those moments, a boundary could mean honoring my, where I am. So I'm going to go and do something a bit more active today and she can have a low key day at home as opposed to us trying to fight or argue or figure out whose need gets met. Sometimes it's about flowing differently in the home with our partners. Mm, that's such a huge distinction. I can speak from experience, like how you mentioned, get creative that is exactly what I had to do with when I lived with my um, grandma on her couch. First, for, first it was when I told my parents I'm not going to going to medical school, and then I still had to live with them and like figure out my life. And I created the most sacred space in my bedroom. Like it was my bedroom had the best vibes because I saged the shit out of it. I Palo Santo the shit out of it. I had like crystals, everything. Like it was my secret sanctuary. And then when I moved in with my grandma on her couch, I was like, all right, what is my corner? Like clearly everyone's in the living room. The TV is blasting like Russian propaganda news 24 seven. I'm like, this is driving me crazy. Like can't handle this. So I created a sacred sanctuary out of my car. My car is where I went to listen to personal development, read books. I treated it like my own personal lounge chair and just like kept crystals in there and some good smelling stuff and just created an environment. And it worked, Nicole. Like it was exactly what I needed to stay sane. And I tell people all the time as well, like, listen, with a lot of things in life, you just got to get creative. And yeah. that creativity is the is what creates an expansive mind. And ex- an expansive mind is what creates an expansive life. So start with the small shit. Like, how do you get creative around your space? Start there and then you'll figure out 
bigger things in life. Like how do we get creative around making more money? How do we get creative in our business? How do we get creative? And it just like, it goes from there, but you got to start really small. Um, I want to talk about two more like topics. Um, one of them is actually with, with boundaries. This is huge. Um, and you talk about this a lot and we have very similar, um, I think at least similar stories, but there's a controversial topic around cutting out family members, right? Some people have the belief that that is the inner work is done with keeping those people in your life and you just have to like figure it out. And there's another school of thought that says, no, like forgiveness and inner work has nothing to do with them. It has everything to do with you. And personally, I am someone who has cut out my father out of my life. That is a boundary that I needed. I had to go to the extremes and I've never been happier. And it was in this decision that I was finally able to forgive him. And finally, I can see my father in a much brighter light. When he was in my life and constantly leaking my energy, even from just like an energetic standpoint of just him having access to me, I would just constantly think about him and I would have so much resentment towards him and so much frustration towards him. And when I finally made the decision of changing my phone number and not giving him my phone number, and it's not like I just we were like BFFs and then I just cut him mm-hmm. off. Like it was bound to happen anyway. So I don't think he's surprised at all. But me just like creating this boundary in my life has brought me so much peace to where I am finally able to see him for who he is, which is another human being. Like what is your take on this? And like for anyone struggling with this, like maybe feeling guilty for cutting someone out of their life or like maybe someone um, has a plan to like, I don't know. Can you talk a little bit about this and how this relates to boundaries and what your, you know, what is your take on the quote, family is everything, right? When we have this conditioning that family is everything and you have to do everything for family. Like, I know you, I know you got some shit to say about this. Uh, of course. It's funny. <laughs> uh, someone actually titled a podcast, an episode that I was on, uh, family isn't everything. Cause I talk a lot about this. So I want to wrap in, you know, kind of a response to what you were saying about creativity as well, because sometimes it's a little bit complicated for us. It's not just like, oh, let me get creative and create my space over here. Because on some deep level, some of us might be assigning that those words that you and I referenced earlier, selfish, you know, it might be selfish for me to do something for just myself. Making a decision about boundaries within my family might be felt to be selfish. So I just want to acknowledge that it is about, you know, kind of creating the space for us, whether it's in our uh, uh, immediate family relationships or in our homes with my own space, that it can be a bit more complicated because we might be operating with these deeper held beliefs, right? That doing so is selfish or isn't appropriate or isn't what moms do. I'm not a mother, but playing out, right? Moms don't take 20 minutes of the day for themselves. Well, I can make an argument that moms do. And that if moms do do that, they can then be more present for their child. So Mm. that's just kind of a piggyback into this topic because a lot of us are made to believe, you know, with family messaging, a family mantra in my home was family is everything. It might as well have been hanging up, you know, on, on a wall and we all paid homage to it. So my background with my family is because, you know, coming from an enmeshed family, you know, part of my work became identifying and putting some new boundaries in place. So I got to the place uh, two Julys ago, so right around when I launched my Instagram, where I made the very painful, very difficult decision to go no contact with my family. So my core family, when I say family, who I reference mainly, is my mom, my dad, and my sister. Mm. 
I have two siblings, a sister and a brother. My sister is 15 years older than me. My brother is 18. He and I have been always a bit more disconnected. So when I say family, I mean my mom and my sister. Mm -hmm. So I I went no contact with them. And I heard a lot about, you know, that decision from a lot of different people, them included. You know, I heard all of the reasons why I was selfish for putting up these boundaries, which concluded in a hard stop of a relationship. I felt at that point of my healing though, Catherine, that I'm, you know, I think I'm hearing you feel with your father that it was necessary, that I wasn't able to create the space and focus on myself after what was for me a lifetime of focusing on that family, that family is everything mantra. So for a lot of people, I know it can be, I know for me, it was the most difficult decision I've ever made in my life. Uh, I didn't wish that to be the case. You know, I wished a way to find how to navigate relations with them through the healing journey. But for me, I just, I couldn't. Um, so I think a lot of us, you know, struggle uh, in terms of our family. So I, I don't, I'm not in disagreement that healing can happen within families. Of course, healing is relate. We are interpersonal creatures. We heal in relationships. Absolutely. However, only us as individuals can know, you know, if and when we actually need some space from specific relationships to either be able to engage at a later time and or to not, even if those people are determined or deemed family members. Yeah, I love it. It all comes down to personal choice and there's no right or wrong answer and you have to use your intuition on what's right or right for you. And there is no right or wrong. It's just what's serving me and what's not serving me. And that's the framework I choose to see it from. And uh, such a beautiful answer you just gave. I know it's going to give people a lot of like guidance, especially, um, you know, with this coming up. Speaking of family, um, I have a mom on actually two moms on my team. And I have a lot of moms asking like, you know, we're healing shit from our childhood as, you know, as adults. And a lot of us are parents. And then we have our kids right? And we're so afraid to pass down all of our traumas and all of our patterns and behaviors and anything onto them because we don't want to mess, quote unquote, mess them up, right? Because we're working so hard on healing. It's like, God forbid my child has to do this because of things that I passed down to them, conditioning that I passed down to them. And it's known now that between the ages of zero and seven, children are basically in a theta brainwave state and they're walking subconscious minds and they they absorb everything around them, which is how we got here, right? But as parents, I know that you're not a parent. I'm not either. I just know that, you know, like this comes up a lot especially since I do have a lot of moms following me and vice versa. I know you do too. What can parents do to like simultaneously self-heal or embark on a healing journey and then also not necessarily pass that on to their kids? Like, is there something that they can do? Any advice that you have? Yeah. yeah. Well, this is where parents hate me when I respond with my honest answer, which is the answer I always get because I get very specific parenting questions. How do I avoid or how do I navigate this difficult moment? I will never, there's amazing, you know, especially emotion regulation based child family therapists out there on the internet, giving you those concrete tools. I will always refer to those Mm -hmm. practitioners for that level of advice. My answer is always the same, which is to model healing, right? To heal yourself first. Because a lot of us do very well intentionally want to avoid the pain that we were caused, you know, into our children, you know, but 
children see and learn most from what they see, right? That old moniker, like, do as I say, not as I do. Well, actually, quite the opposite is what really happens. Children are seeing and are more imprinted and affected by what they're seeing, what is being modeled to them or what they're experiencing in the relationships with these people, right? So your relationship with yourself is going to impact your children. So even if you're trying your very best to show up as his parent, right, if you're not healing yourself, that's what's going to translate to the child. So my answer is always twofold model, right? Model healing to yourself. And this is the other part that they hate. I don't actually think it's a bad thing to fuck your kid up a little bit. I think it's actually a natural thing that's going to happen with all of us because we're separate humans, raising separate humans, you know, to be totally attuned to another creature is incredibly difficult, (laughs) right? So at some point, a child's need is going to go unmet in some way. That's just it. I could go ahead and make an argument that that is what helps the child develop resilience and an ability to cope with that thing, especially if they have an attentive, attuned parent on the other side that can help them through. A little fuck up isn't a bad thing because what also isn't a good thing, right, is overcompensation. If I try to raise a bubble kid, as so many of us do when we don't want to cause our children pain, chances are that might become a child that then goes out into the world that's not a bubble, right, and has no idea how to navigate the harder things in life. Mm. So uh, neither extreme is helpful. So a little, you know, distress for our children isn't a bad thing as long as we're holding space and modeling for them how to work through difficult feelings. So freaking good. I love that answer because it's so true. It's like we cannot possibly be perfect. And so Mm. we cannot possibly raise perfect children. Like there, and, and, that's not the point of life anyway. And so if we're trying to raise perfect children, then like, what are they going to grow through? Like we are souls that incarnated here. They're little souls who incarnated here to grow and evolve and explore and experience challenges for the sake of growth. And if you're taking that all away from them, then it's like, what's the point? First of all, that's impossible. And second of all, like, okay, so why are they here? You know what I mean? And I love that answer. I have... One final question for you, just because my audience just kept asking this over and over again, which we, this is the Manifestation Bay podcast. So I'm just curious, what is your take on manifestation and the law of attraction? Like where does, where do you bring that into your your life? Cause I know you're a powerful manifester. I just know. Um, what is your take on it and how has it helped you in your life personally? Yeah. Well, when I was joking earlier and I, I kind of acknowledged that I too manifested having this chat with you. I mean, I manifested this space I'm living in, in my opinion, here in Venice, being here. So my relationship with manifestation, if you would have asked me, I think like a lot of us a decade or so ago, you know, whenever the secret first came out and I was, you know, delivered this opportunity to think of a million dollars and it's on my door, you know, I I poo-pooed it. Like I I read it, I watched it or what have you. And I decided it, it was silly. You know, it was definitely far-fetched. I really began to understand what manifestation is when I really began to understand, you know, the quantum world and energetics and and all of that. So when the little scientist in me, when I was able to map on what I think they were trying to say and explain, you know, onto what it actually is that they're saying and explaining, then I was really able to embrace it and begin to, you know, play around with it in my life. So I loved how you said earlier too, it's a daily thing. You know, my manifestation practice, while... I have a morning ritual and a lot of times I will spend some time when I'm meditating in the morning. If I have something coming up or if I want to have something coming up, I will do that more structured way we think of manifesting. However, I always, I also like you 
try to live my life as a walking, waking, you know, manifestation, which just means being aware of what I'm thinking and what am I engaging in in terms of my thought. The more negative it is, the more I know that's going to affect my vibration. I also know for me, it's very tempting to engage those negative thoughts. I, a lot of times, have to talk myself out of wanting to indulge, as I call it, whatever it is, my sadness or my irritation. I have a lot of days where I don't want to. I want to replay the thing that's bothering me over and over again so that I'm nice and upset. And I don't want to vibrate differently. Thank you very much. So, <laughs> but I pay attention to that now because totally. I know the longer I indulge in that state, you know, my, I'm not being fully present and I'm not embodying you know, the energetics that I want to embody to create a new future. So I very much am, in my opinion, working to cultivate, you know, a living act of manifesting, which for me involves being present, right? Being energetically attuned to my system and trying, you know, not to do myself a disservice by my mind. Of course, we all have to honor when we have low feelings, when low vibrations come up, I'm not saying ignore it, think your way out of it. I'm just saying, I know for me, I do a lot more indulging than is helpful. Yes. Well, thank you for that honest answer. And yeah, you, I loved watching your journey. I remember, I remember when you first said like, I'm planning on this move to LA. And like, we talked, we kind of talked about how like, you know, people have these stories around like, why would you move to LA? It's so expensive. And I remember us going back and forth in DMs be like, who cares? Well, we're going to do it anyway. And it's just like, it's so exciting. I know we're, we were supposed to do this um, podcast interview in person and we kept like pushing it. Well, I, you know, I did, I kept saying like, no, 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 let's push it like two more weeks. Maybe things will open back up. I really want to meet her in person. Like she's here in LA. This makes sense. And then of course, like we're doing it virtually, but I know that we're going to hang out in person as soon as quarantine is done. Like, I just freaking love you. I just want you to know that. Like, I just freaking love you. Um, so thank you so much for sharing your time and energy. So um, generously and so genuinely and so authentically. Like you are such an incredible soul doing such amazing work. And for again, the 0.0001% of people who aren't yet following you, where can they find you? Where, where can they learn more about your beautiful work? Like where do you spend most time um, on the internet? And <laughs> I keep hearing incredible things about your future self journal. Like where can people find that? Share the yeah, details. absolutely. So thank you for all those kind, kind words, Catherine. The love goes right back to you. And I look forward to the day where we can meet in actual human form. Yes. So most of my time is spent on Instagram uh, here as the, the.holistic.psychologist. Um, all, everything that I'm doing, anything that I'm up to, I usually filter through there. So that's where I shout out. Uh, I do have a YouTube channel. I release videos on Sundays. Again, you'll see that coming through the Instagram. Also in a link tree there is the Future Self Journal. If you sign up for my email list, a couple of journal prompts will come to your inbox, get you practicing, thinking toward a future that's different and creating that future. So very much in alignment, I think, with the work of your community. Totally. Yeah. So come check me out. I'm on Instagram pretty much daily, either putting out content or talking about my own healing journey and all <laughs> the fun stuff that comes will definitely be shouted from the Instagram rooftop. Yes. You guys, if this episode spoke to you, go ahead and take a screenshot right now. First of all, anything that has been brought up, any resources or anything like that, and especially her Instagram will be put in the show notes. So you can get that just by swiping up on if you're listening on iTunes. And then um, also, if you're listening and you enjoyed this, take a screenshot 
and add this to your story. Tag both of us at the dot holistic dot psychologist and at manifestation babe and just let us know and send all your love to Nicole for being here today and sharing so generously and just like, wow, this has been such an incredible interview and I am so grateful for you. Uh, thank you so much for your time and energy. I mean, this has been so, so amazing and I just love you and I can't stop saying that. Like you are doing such incredible work. So thank I you. I say the same and I mean the same right back at you, Catherine. Watching you embody your power has really helped that scarcity, that scared little girl inside of me begin <laughs> to step into mine as well. So thank you. I truly mean that and I love you too. Mwah. Thank you so much for tuning into today's episode. If you absolutely loved what you heard today, be sure to share it with me by leaving a review on iTunes so that I can keep the good stuff coming your way. If you aren't already following me on social media, come soak up the extra inspiration on Instagram by following at ManifestationBabe or visiting my website at ManifestationBabe.com. I love and adore you so much and can't wait to connect with you in the next episode. In the meantime, go out there and manifest some magic.